and welcome to Hear and Know, presented by Hill and Knowlton Strategies. We are a global communication agency with a simple goal, to drive growth, build reputation and protect against risk. In this series, we invite senior leaders across our business to unpack current events with some of the brightest minds in the industry and across the sectors we advise. Listen in to hear their stories and get in the know. Hello and welcome to Hear and Know, the official podcast of Hill and Knowlton Strategies. My name is Austin Close and I'm an account manager in the corporate affairs and advisory team here at HK London. Today I'm joined by two experts to chat all things Northern Ireland with me. I'm David Blevins, I'm the senior Ireland correspondent at Sky News. I'm Adam Penn and I'm political editor at the Westminster-based news website Politics Home. Thank you both for your time. It's not only wonderful and coincidental to be recording this episode on St. Patrick's Day with you both, but this is a really pivotal moment in Northern Ireland in what could be a turning point for the country after the May 5th Assembly election was due to take place. Certain polls have suggested that Sinn Féin could become the largest party in Northern Ireland for the first time, and that really is a, a momentous occasion to sort of mark in this. I'll jump straight in and pose the first question to you, David. What do you think are the key drivers and moments over the past few years which help us to understand how we've gotten to this position? Gosh, where do we start? There are so many of them. I uh, chatted with a friend about this recently, and I think we managed to come up with an A, B, C and D, which I think might be the simplest way to try and answer that question. The A, of course, is A for Arlene, as in Arlene Foster, because I think we all know that the division within the DUP that resulted in her ousting last year has been one of the key factors. It's a party that's almost equally divided between ideology and pragmatism that resulted in them having three leaders in the space of 21 days. In terms of the B, well, it's fairly obvious, Brexit. Uh, It was the ideological wing of the party that that won the great battle as to where the DUP would go on Brexit, despite what its repercussions could be for for Northern Ireland. And uh, we now know where that has led to the controversial Northern Ireland protocol that the party detests. In terms of C, I think it's the Commons, because a year after they backed Brexit, of course, they found themselves holding the balance of power in Westminster and became became the darlings of the ERG, really, of the hardline Brexiteers and were often, I think, used by hardline Brexiteers to push for the hardest possible Brexit, even though that was going to have fairly drastic consequences for Northern Ireland. And on D, my friend and I came up with um, either devolution or demographic because we now have an almost evenly split demographic between unionist and nationalist. And all of those things together, I think, are creating this perfect storm at this moment as we go into these critical Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Mm, Yeah, very interesting. Adam, do you have anything to add to that point? Well, obviously, I'm coming at this from a, a Westminster point of view. Um, and I, I think it's worth caveating everything I'm about to say with, in my view, in Westminster, Northern Ireland, Northern Irish politics isn't talked about enough. So when, with that in mind, I wouldn't add much to what David has said. I endorse his ABCD prescription. What I would say is that I think when in Westminster, the DUP is talked about, I think it's widely seen as a party which has made several enormous strategic errors in recent years 
endorsing Brexit, perhaps being one of them, and then taking Boris Johnson on his word when it comes to the Irish Sea being another. And David mentioned the ERG and what's happened there with its relationship with the DUP. I think that's spot on. In the Theresa May years, the ERG, many of their members went as far as saying, I won't do anything, I won't vote for anything unless and until it has the DUP's backing. Don't worry, lads, we've got you here. And then when Boris Johnson entered office, negotiated the um, new arrangements for the protocol, the ERG were quite happy to vote for that package, despite the DUP being dead against it. So when people, I think, talk about the DUP, and clearly the DUP isn't the sole voice of unionism in Northern Ireland, but I think in Westminster, when people think about what's happening to unionism, they often think about the DUP and how, generally speaking, it's had a pretty disastrous few years. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, would you say that there's a branding problem then with unionism in Northern Ireland? You know, speaking as someone who works in Westminster, I remember having this conversation, actually. I recently did a roundtable with unionists from different political parties. There was um, Douglas Ross from the Conservative Party, Scottish Conservatives. Um, Arlene Foster was actually part of his conversation, as was Ian Murray, who was who is the Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland. And one thing they generally agreed on, despite belonging to different parties and political traditions, was that unionism as as a as a a cause in Northern Ireland wasn't doing a very good job of making the case for unionism, particularly um, to young people who, as well as perhaps caring about the union, also care about um, the economy and social causes and progressive politics. And and speaking again, as somebody who works in Westminster, I, you know, I think when people talk about unionism, they do talk about the DUP and, and the, the errors they've made in recent years, and also the brand of politics the DUP stands for. So I remember when the DUP entered that agreement with Theresa May to essentially prop up her government, suddenly in the British press, you had an explosion of articles about, oh, this is what the DUP thinks about abortion or um, LGBT issues. And people in Britain were like, oh my God, like we had no idea that this party with such views existed not too far away in our own country. I remember that morning very well after that general election and actually going on Twitter for the first time and seeing those articles of the DUP emerge mm. and everyone was quite shocked. Yeah, Adam talked there about the strategic errors and I think that is spot on and it is what is preventing the rebranding that we're talking about because they're not doing a very good job of representing unionism because every time they attempt to go there of course it leads straight to Brexit with people asking the question well if you wanted to protect the union and if you wanted to protect Northern Ireland's position constitutionally as part of the United Kingdom why did you campaign for Brexit so I think it is the strategic decision whatever your view is of that decision to back the Leave campaign that prevents them from rebranding now, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, the title of this episode is called Irish Unity in Our Times. And that's a recent quotation from Mary Lou MacDonald, who, as we know, is the Sinn Féin president. If a Sinn Féin politician occupies the position of first minister after May the 5th, Will we see a united Ireland anytime soon, given the given the drawbacks that unionism are cur is currently facing? Well, I think we're back to ideology and pragmatism because ideologically, 
I think the Brexit uh, decision has pushed uh, Ireland as a whole in the direction of unity and there are those who believe this is the opportunity uh, to capitalise upon that, particularly Republicans and nationalists who feel with a border now in the Irish Sea, uh, really you've got economically a united Ireland in place as it is and therefore uh, this is the moment to push towards that. But pragmatically, I think also even those who would like to see a United Ireland recognise that we could be some distance from that yet because we haven't had the conversation and we need to learn the lessons from the Scottish independence referendum and the lessons of Brexit and have really meaningful debate around things like health and education and the economy and governance and where those of a British identity would fit into a new Ireland before people are are properly equipped to vote. I think that was the difference with the Good Friday Agreement. I often say that those of us who've covered this place for a long time went from being war correspondents to some extent to being political analysts overnight because we had to explain the intricacies of the Good Friday Agreement so that the electorate was in a position to vote. And we need to get back to that place where people know exactly what they're voting for. And I also do not believe that any Tory Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is going to reach the point where they believe the bar has been met to call a referendum on Irish unity. So my gut feeling is even if we have a Sinn Féin first minister and even if we had the first Sinn Féin Taoiseach and Mary Lou Macdonald after the next general election in the Republic of Ireland, we could still be some distance from Irish unity. Very interesting. Adam, do you want to weigh in there? To be honest, my the version of the answer that I was preparing is very similar to David's. I think what I would say is that the fact that we're even having this conversation now on a quite regular basis, i.e. is Irish unity possible, is a significant development in itself. Um, it's a conversation that we perhaps weren't having as regularly or with a, that level of seriousness a few years ago. What I would say is, coming at it from a, a Westminster's perspective, is that I know for a fact that there is concern within government if, if as the polls are suggesting, um, the DUP emerges the second largest party in the May elections, and if by that point, in the eyes of the DUP, the issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol haven't been sufficient, sufficiently, excuse me, resolved, then they may not agree to enter an executive. And I know that that's something the government's very concerned about. Um, But in terms of, to be honest with you, and this comes back to my first point about Westminster not really paying as much attention to Northern Ireland as it should, I think the prospect of of Sinn Féin being in power across the island of Ireland, as David talked about, I don't think figures in Westminster MPs, particularly Tory MPs, are really alert to that prospect yet. Mm. I think what I think what could well happen is we get to May the 5th, then the morning after, once the results become clear, and let's say it is Sinn Féin largest party, I think Westminster is going to have a collective, oh my God, moment. What does this mean? This is this is an extraordinary result. And then you'll have then you'll have that sort of delayed sense of shock and, and panic particularly among Tories, because in Westminster right now, clearly there are other big things going on with what's going on in Ukraine and uh, the cost of living crisis. And before that, we had Partygate and 
sort of the dying embers of COVID as a big story. Perhaps there hasn't been that much room in political conversation for what's going on in Northern Ireland. But I think Westminster, by that I mean, you know, MPs in that bubble may not really think seriously about this and what it means until the morning after May the 5th. And then suddenly it becomes a really big story in in London. Because the immediate thing that Sinn Féin will likely do is is call for grounds on a referendum down down the border of Northern Ireland and Ireland. So it, it's it's very hard to sort of think that they don't have grounds at all, that there's sentiment for United Ireland. But it's really interesting because it's almost in parallel with Brexit in a lot of ways, I feel. People don't know what they're voting for or asking for until it gets to the crunch point and sometimes when it's happened. Can I just jump in and say I totally agree with what Adam had to say about how Northern Ireland is perceived from Westminster and by the rest of the United Kingdom as a whole, I have to say. Um, Adam, in many ways, is the exception rather than the rule in terms of his interest in and knowledge of Northern Ireland. Uh, In his book, The Secret Life of a Spad, Peter Cardwell uses the term Blevins Law. It came out of a conversation we once had, and it is roughly defined as never underestimate how little the English understand Northern Ireland. And I say that kindly um, because it's not front page news every day anymore. We don't have bombs and bullets every day. Thankfully, Uh, it has drop down the news agenda because of other global affairs and for all of those reasons I think there is not the same level of understanding and the other complication is that this British government doesn't want to admit that some of the difficulties we face right now are as a result of Brexit and of the Northern Ireland Protocol that established that border in the Irish Sea. We have to to also remember there are three other major parties in Northern Ireland and two of those parties helped to broker the Good Friday Agreement many years ago. Do they, are they struggling to get recognition in this sort of fringe, polar opposite political climate in Northern Ireland, do you think? Well, what I will say is, Austin, is that there are MPs representing those other parties who, since being elected to Westminster in the last few years have called have developed really positive reputations so i'm thinking of people like stephen farry who comes to mind who in the time he's spent in westminster has i think been impressive i think people across the party spectrum respect him think he's a a knowledgeable and decent mp and Figures like Stephen Farry, I'm not being paid by Stephen Farry to say this, by the way. Uh, He's just the first person who came to mind. Um, So I think MPs like Stephen are putting their parties on, at least somewhere on the map in a a Westminster sense. But but equally, I'd say, you know, you talked about the other parties and you, you look at what's going on in Northern Ireland with, you know, although it looks like the DUP will be the second largest party, clearly... It has driven away some of its traditional voters to other unionist parties uh, and splitting the unionist vote. I think the nuances of party politics in Northern Ireland at the moment are not really widely known within Westminster, or at least they're not widely discussed in that sense. I think the other two parties, both 
from a unionist and nationalist perspective, the Ulster Unionist Party and the Social Democratic and Labour Party, led by Colm Eastwood, another MP who's making his mark in Westminster these days, have been squeezed as the more moderate faces of unionism and nationalism because of the form of government we have. Mandatory coalition that is was established under the Good Friday Agreement, which many people would argue that the Good Friday Agreement and the structure of government established as a result of it stopped the bombs and the bullets, but it didn't it didn't promote reconciliation. And and therefore, we've just got this constant system where you have to have polar opposites being forced to share power. That's why those more moderate parties have been squeezed. But Stephen Farry's party, Naomi Long's party, the Alliance uh, team are growing in number and are growing uh, in popularity, particularly among the younger generation of the electorate. Many of them, I think, will lean towards the middle ground. And I think this could be a very good election for Alliance. I was actually going to pick up on that point there you've just made about Alliance, David. I remember a couple of years ago, Naomi Long talked of an Alliance surge um, in Northern Ireland, and it sounds like you predict another surge for that party in this upcoming election. I think they will do very well because it's not just young people, many of them voting now who were not born even at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, but also the older generation who would place themselves in the middle ground are go out and talk to people on the street in Northern Ireland and they will not be talking about the Northern Ireland protocol and whether it's working or it isn't. They will be talking about the having the longest health waiting lists in the UK. They'll be talking about whether or not it's time for integrated education. They'll be talking about the cost of living, energy prices, just like everyone else is across the, the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. So the issue that those, uh, I, I, I think, parties to the extreme left and right, the DUP and Sinn Féin are constantly promoting, are not the issues on the doorstep they're going to find. What what I'd, I completely agree with that. And what I'd, I'd add to that is for lots of young people in Northern Ireland and indeed slightly older people, their unionism or their nationalism isn't their primary identity. They may well say, yeah, I'm a unionist, but their most important political identity, as it were, may be that they're a socialist or progressive, or perhaps on the other side, they may see themselves as small C conservative, fiscally conservative. And as David says, their primary concern may not be constitutional issues or custom checks in the Irish Sea. They may be, their primary concern may be cost of living and education. And if you are someone who identifies as a unionist, but you are, for example, you might hold left-wing views on the economy, on welfare. Uh, and, you know, over the last few years, there hasn't really been an obvious home for you in terms of Northern Irish party politics. And I think that nuance, the fact that unionism, nationalism isn't everyone's most important identity, is something that perhaps gets a bit lost in how we talk about Northern Irish politics. Do you think with with an SNP first minister in Scotland, is there any lessons or parallels that can be drawn that we should be able to predict in terms of a Sinn Féin first minister? 
Austin, I feel like a needle stuck on a record today because I keep talking about ideology and pragmatism. And I think we're back there for the third time now because the, it is a political ideology that there would be Scottish independence just as it is a political ideology that there would be um, Irish unity. I think Sinn Féin will note that the journey has taken much longer than many might have anticipated in Scotland. And therefore, they need to, if they seriously want to move towards a referendum on Irish unity, pace themselves and pace that debate, make sure it is well informed. And I think even though, as you said earlier, the moment after an assembly election, if there is a Sinn Féin first minister, or the morning after a general election in the Republic, if there was a Sinn Féin Taoiseach, and they were immediately calling for a referendum on Irish unity, it they would know that that's really only an ideological position. Pragmatically, they know that there's much more work to be done before they get there. And I think that would be the lesson they probably would learn most. Yeah, and what I'd add to that is that, you know, don't forget that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP keep on winning elections, are still polling well in Scotland, but there is absolutely no sign whatsoever of the... Mm. UK government granting um, a referendum, no matter how compelling the SNP's argument may be that that they've earned it through their democratic success. And also, if a, refer- a Scottish referendum was to be on the table, and we, and we did have it, I think the SNP in this post-Brexit context, when we're talking about borders and... Um, paperwork and the EU single market customs union would face pretty probing questions as to, for example, whether a Scotland in the European Union would mean border checks with the rest of the United Kingdom, for example. And I think David talked about the need to have a conversation about Irish unity, what it would mean practically. If we are to have that conversation, then it'll be interesting to see how those advocating um, Irish unity would perform in those conversations because as far as I can tell we haven't really had a proper practical conversation about what Irish unity would look like what it would feel like what it would mean for institutions for the economy and for everyday lives I just add one thing to that I think it's important for people to understand that even if we have a Sinn Féin first minister after the assembly election in May it doesn't necessarily while many people will say that means we've reached the bar where there should be a referendum on Irish unity. My understanding of the um, obligation of the Northern Ireland Secretary is it is when he or she feels that a referendum is likely to result in a change to the current constitutional position that they have to call that referendum. But Sinn Féin may be the largest party, but it doesn't necessarily mean that nationalists stroke Republicans would be the largest designation. There could actually still be more unionists in the Northern Ireland Assembly. After this election, Sinn Féin might just be the largest party, which would therefore make it easy for Brandon Lewis, the current Northern Ireland Secretary, to say the bar hasn't been reached. The final question I will ask, what would you like to see as an outcome of this next Assembly election? Being an impartial reporter, I couldn't possibly comment on the the makeup of the Assembly. I think what I'd like to see is whatever happens, the sort of formation of an executive and... I'd like to see a fully functioning government in Northern Ireland as soon as possible, which is able to take decisions on incredibly important matters. I think what most people would like to see is a 
an executive in place very quickly and that we don't have the kind of stalemate we had for three years after the botched renewable energy scheme and the collapse of Stormont at that stage because it really does affect the bread and butter issues. And there is a real possibility of that kind of stalemate again. If Sinn Féin does emerge as the largest party, it's very difficult to see the DUP facilitating the election of a Sinn Féin First Minister by nominating a Deputy First Minister and who knows where we would be in that situation. There is no legislation currently at Westminster to allow for direct rule to be reimposed, although that could be rushed through, I'm sure, quite quickly. There's certainly no provision for joint authority between London and Dublin uh, because that would require some sort of vote, you would imagine, under the principle of consent. So we could find ourselves in a bit of a mess and in a mess for a long time. And many people do believe if we reach that point, we will be witnessing the end of Good Friday Agreement politics. It will be time to go back to the negotiating table. But Sinn Féin's attitude will be, why should we go back and renegotiate now just because the unionists didn't win this time? So it's not going to be an easy road ahead. I think it'll be a very, very close election. I'm not sure that I completely believe the polls because there's such a small sample in Northern Ireland and because this is a place where people don't tend to raise their heads above the parapet and tell you how they're going to vote. David, Adam, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been really interesting and let's see what next Assembly election brings. And if you'd like to keep up with the conversation and and share it on social media, you can tag us at HK underscore London using David and Adam's Twitter handles at Sky David Blevins at Adam Payne twenty six.